This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR, this is World Cafe. Hey, I'm Kaleo. Peter Jesperson is the co-founder of the indie label Twin Tone Records, home to bands like the Jayhawks and Soul Asylum, not to mention another band he signed and managed, The Replacements. His new memoir is called Euphoric Recall, a half-century as a music fan, producer, DJ, record executive, and tastemaker. In addition to being an autobiography, it's also a love letter to the Minneapolis music scene that covers a lot of underground rock from the 1970s and 1980s. Jesperson joins me to talk about the memoir, the brilliance of The Replacements, and possibly being let go from R.E.M. for being too nice. It's a very Midwestern thing, don't you think? Let's get into it with one of my favorite songs from the Mats. It's Left of the Dial, here on World Cafe. World Cafe. It's the replacements left of the dial. Joining me today is their longtime manager, Peter Jesperson. He's also the co-founder of Twin Tone Records, home to bands like Soul Asylum, The Suburbs, Jonathan Richmond, and The Jayhawks. He has a new memoir out, and it's called Euphoric Recall, a half century as a music fan, producer, DJ, record executive, and tastemaker. I'm Kaleo on World Cafe. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Awesome. We're glad you're here as well. Um, you know, this book is such a love letter to the Twin Cities music scene. I feel like it's intertwined. You couldn't write your own autobiography without almost doing a history of what was going on. Right. I think you're, I think you're right. And I, and I did try to steer it into the memoir world. I didn't think that my life was all that interesting to uh, everybody uh, as an autobiography. And, and, but I thought the memoir of the work I did in music is really what I aimed for. So that, that was what um, kind of my, my point was. Yeah. Um, early in your life, you had a gig working in a theater, board hopping at a radio station in the overnight hours. Uh, but the musical story really kind of takes off when you started working at Orfolk. And I want to get this right. Uh, Orfolk Joke Opus. How, how would you say it if you were, if you were heading over there? I'd say Orfolk Joke Opus, just like you said it. It's, it's actually, uh, you know, two album titles slammed together. Mm, yeah. And uh, it's a legendary uh, record store in the Twin Cities. Um, Particularly when you were working there, it felt like a really special place. There were so many cool things going on. What were some of the things that, in your estimation, made it so quintessentially like Twin City? I think that it was the sort of the the changing of the guard to a certain extent when record stores, when I was growing up, were run by adults and business people, and they were naturally choosing uh, to stock the music that was going to sell the best. And um, we followed our own path. We didn't use the, the old rule book. And um, so it really became a, a, a kind of a clubhouse for music fanatics. Everybody who worked there lived and breathed music and were, to some degree, I'm, dare I say, experts in, the, in, in their field, in our field. 
I mean, I, I, I could go on and on about it. It's probably the, the job I was best suited for in my life, and I loved it dearly uh, and worked there for a decade. Yeah. Um, so one of the songs that we wanted to sort of tie into, or at least one of the bands, rather, that we wanted to tie into um, that you talk a lot about during this phase in the late 70s is the uh, Suicide Commandos. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, what made them vital? Suicide Commandos, it is impossible to overstate their importance in the Minneapolis rock scene. They were literally the first punk rock band in town uh, of any note, and uh, they were punk rock before the term really had come into play. So uh, they started in 1975. I think they made their way, actually made their way out east in late 75 or early 76 to play CBGBs, which is... You know, I mean, that's big bang moment. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, so they were a trio uh, who were going. Uh, they didn't like what they were hearing on the radio at the time. And of course, in the early 70s, you had a lot of the progressive rock, the singer songwriter and the disco all kind of uh, coming at you from different angles. And, and the commandos loved Eddie Cochran and, um, uh, you know, the, the early Who records and, and the simplicity of some of that stuff. And that's what they wanted to do. They were like a power trio. And all three of them sang, all three of them wrote. Um, and they were, um, they, they were very intelligent and they had a great sense of humor. And I think that that's a difficult thing to do in rock and roll. And they were just a balls to the wall rock and roll band. I mean, they were so incredibly exciting on stage. Talk about some of the traits that you said they possessed. You can hear it immediately yeah. um, on this album. So we wanted to play Attacking the Beat, the Suicide Commandos, here on World Cafe. From the Suicide Commandos, that's Attacking the Beat here on World Cafe. My guest is Peter Jesperson. We're talking about his memoir, Euphoric Recall, documenting his life in and around music, including managing the replacements. When it comes to the mats, you were there from the beginning, um, or almost the beginning, but in, in the sense of hearing recorded music, it's 1980. Were you, do you think you were probably the first person outside of the band's inner circle to hear the demo? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I was. I mean, they were they'd only done a handful of shows, a couple of parties, um, you know, uh, in the in the suburbs, uh, uh, you know, keggers where people would get together in, a, in an old farmhouse or something and, you know, plug some bands in and have them play live. Um, but they uh, they brought me the demo in the spring of 80, probably late April, early May. And um, I was working at the record store and, and a, a young kid that I hadn't ever met before walked up to the counter and said, I have a tape. Would you uh, check this out? And I said, I'd be happy to. And um, 
and he gave me a little piece of paper with his name and phone number on it, and I put it in my little stack of tapes that I was getting. And, and at the time, I was uh, because I was DJing at the Longhorn and we had started Twin Tone, uh, I was getting tapes for two different reasons. I was getting tapes because I had some sway in bookings at the Longhorn. And then I also was doing talent scouting for Twin Tone. And uh, when Paul, when the gentleman gave me the tape, I didn't know necessarily what it was for. And sometimes they would say, hey, I'd like to get a gig at the Longhorn. We listen to my tape or, hey, we'd like to be on Twin Tone. Would you listen to my tape? In this case, as far as I remember anyway, he just gave me the tape and didn't specify. So when I listened to the tape, I was absolutely utterly blown away. It was head and shoulders above anything I'd heard lately. And I was getting a lot of tapes at the time. So when I called him back, my first thought was, uh, are you looking to, I love the music. Are you looking to make a single or an album? And there was this long pause. And he said, you mean you think this crap is worth recording? And um, pretty much quote unquote. And uh, I said, it, then I realized that what he was trying to do was get a gig at the Longhorn. I said, well, yes, I think it's worth recording, but I could also help you get a gig at the Longhorn if that's what you're looking for. And so I did both. Wow. I mean, and the way you describe this, it, it really did feel like, you know, sort of Newton having the apple plop on his head and, and discovering gravity. Like, what did you hear in that demo? I, it really, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I, I guess if I've ever had a magic moment in my life, it was, that was, that would, was it, or was one of them. It just leapt out of the speakers. Um, I was playing it on a boom box in the office at Orfolk. Uh, and I would do this periodically when I would amass a certain number of tapes and I would sit in the back room and do paperwork for the store and pop tapes in one after another in a boom box. And, you know, sometimes I'd listen for a minute. Sometimes I'd listen for, you know, three or four songs. And in this case, I probably got through 20, 30 seconds of the first song before I just thought I was like the guy in the Max L ad sitting there with his hair blowing back kind of thing, you know? So uh, I thought, wait a minute, I, I have to put my pen down and concentrate on this. So I hit stop, I rewound it to the beginning and I just sat there and I listened. And I really did my first response um, to hearing uh, the, the first replacement song that I heard, it was called Raised in the City, which we later re-recorded for the first album. That's the closing song on the first album. But I, um, I, uh, I, I thought this is kind of like a, maybe an X-rated Chuck Berry. The lyrics were a little off color, shall we say. And um, it just, it felt like basic rock and roll, but it didn't feel retro. It was completely modern and um, great singer. Uh, wasn't necessarily a pitch perfect kind of singer, but really sang with a lot of emotion. And just the, the I think the fierceness of the tape is what grabbed me. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's take a listen to a bit of the first song you ever heard, the version that ended up on their debut album, Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash. It's Raised in the City from The Replacements, here on World Cafe. Raised in the city, ready to run, cruise to the lake, fun, 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 dear sail climb to cruise around. Raised in the city, raised on fears, she got all four gears disinclined to lay down Get out of my way, I can't see it Out of my way, I can't see no band 
We're talking with Peter Jesperson here on World Cafe. He managed the replacements. You just heard the replacements raised in the city uh, from their debut album. Sorry, Ma, forgot to take out the trash. Uh, the new memoir from Peter is called Euphoric Recall. Um, one of the interesting stories that I did not know about is early in the band's career, it almost sounded like it was like a secretive uh, uh, thing that uh, Paul Westerberg would do and that he would slip you like demo ideas, but he didn't want the other band members to hear what he was giving to you. Can you talk about why he did that? So as he was writing the kind of more introspective, tender songs, I didn't know it until one day he said, you know, I've been working on these things in my parents' basement. I don't want the band to know. I, I don't want them to think that I'm going for a solo career or I'm not sure exactly what was on his mind then, but he said he just wanted to keep it private. And he said, would you listen to these and give me some feedback? I said, absolutely. I'd love to. And those early songs were, um, he'd give me a couple at a time, sometimes one at a time. And they were little sketches, uh, some not complete, some complete. And, um, but they were, it was, it was something that showed me a side of Paul that I didn't know was there. I had underestimated how great a songwriter he was already at 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. And, um, and so uh, there was a point where he handed me a song in particular called You're Getting Married that absolutely sort of scared me because I thought he's so much better than I thought he was. I, I didn't know if I had the ability to handle somebody with a talent of this magnitude. It really did blow my mind. And uh, one of the early songs, I remember maybe the first one that really, really made me take notice was a song called Bad Worker. And there was a line in the song where he sings, uh, I'm a bad worker, I'll, uh, 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 I, I'm a bad worker. My father would be ashamed. I'm a bad, bad worker. I'll give you minimum effort for a minimum, minimum wage. And I just thought that was a brilliant piece of writing. And um, that's uh, that. That's sort of where it all began. Well, let's take a listen to it. Solo home demo of Bad Worker, Paul Westerberg, replacements here on World Cafe. <laughs> Fingerprints off of this glass Wanna keep your job You better start kissing somebody's ass Excuse me, miss I gotta get under your feet I'm here with Peter Jesperson, author of Euphoric Recall, his memoir documenting his time uh, running record labels, managing bands, and a bit of a love letter to the Twin Cities music scene. Um, you can hear some of that visceralness, like the like the lyrics just like hit like a ton of bricks when you when you check out that song, "Bad Worker." Um, I want to do a couple of quick hits because, uh, you know, there are some moments in your career that go well beyond the replacements, uh, including running a record label and for a brief spell, working with R.E.M. Um, as their road manager. And uh, an intermediary tells you after you've been asked to leave managing the group that you might have been too nice. <laughs> okay, what was, what was that time like? Oh, well, uh, I'd become friends with the band. We sold the crap out of their Radio Free Europe single at our record store in Minneapolis um, before they ever had, before even the Chronic Town EP. And um, so they were, uh, as I mentioned in the book, I think they were a bona fide phenomenon on the strength of a single 45. And um, 
when they came to Minneapolis, they recognized the fact that they had a little larger crowd than they were expecting, and they related that to the record store. They realized that the record store had a lot to do with the number of people that were there. And um, so we became friends. And Peter Buck and I especially, we were uh, just very similar people. We loved to listen to records and drink beer and stay up late and, and uh, carouse. And so um, he was he was my first you know good buddy in the band. And so uh, I ended up doing uh, a couple of months with REM, July and August of, uh, of 1983. And it was, a, it was an amazing time. I mean, certainly uh, 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 very different from traveling with the replacements. Um, I realized how civilized touring could be. <laughs> and, um, and I enjoyed, you know, their company was, uh, they're just, they're great people. That's one of the things I think um, that stands out to me about REM is a lot of times you, you can meet your heroes and, and you can be a little disappointed in, in um, maybe them as people. But all the all the guys in REM, I just uh, I, I love them as people as much as I love their music, and uh, we had a great time. And one of the great highlights of that was we did seven dates opening for the Police in stadiums, and that was a <laughs> that was a trial by fire situation for me. I mean, I had just really started touring with the Replacements a few months before, so I didn't have a lot of that experience. And I'm dealing with some big shots and some you know British tour managers that are uh, have been doing it for you know 20 years and and uh, have been around the block a million times and I had not been around once yet so it was it was a very very um, fun and um exciting time. We got to do Shea Stadium uh, and being a Beatle fan uh, to be loading into Shea Stadium uh, was, uh, I, I just, it was a pinch me moment. And as an added benefit during that time, you got to be a fly on the wall when REM was rehearsing and you got to hear an early sketch of South Central Rain. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, that was a, in fact, it was funny because I didn't exactly remember that and Peter Buck reminded me of it as I was researching the book and talking to him. He said, you know, uh, one of those rehearsals at Bill and Mike's house uh, was the first time I ever played those guys, South Central Rain. But to, to be the fly on the wall and watching those guys putting those songs together, I mean, Murmur was just coming out, for God's sakes. And it was, uh, again, I, I, I feel very fortunate to have been around at that time. Yeah, let's take a listen to R.E.M. here on World Cafe. Did you never call? Peter Jesperson here on World Cafe. We were just listening to some REM. He's the author of the new book, Euphoric Recall, his memoir on uh, managing the replacements, running uh, record labels like Twin Town and working at New West. There are a lot of great stories in the book worth checking out. It's available now. Um, you started out, uh, or one of your first gigs was a radio DJ. And as someone who had my first class uh, operator's license, it's a moment of pride to know that I've got a member of the club with me. But it, I found it heartbreaking that you were a board operator. You weren't actually picking the songs. No. So 
I want to give you the floor uh, to pick one song to go out on. I know that's impossible pressure because we you could play The Suburbs if you wanted to rep Twin Town. You could play Jason Isabel if you want to talk about New West, if you could play your band The Replacements. But now all of the stalling is done. I have to leave it in your court. What would you like to talk about and what would you like to play? Well, I would like to talk about a band called Gold Star. They've been around for a while, but they've um, they're uh, they're hitting it hard now. And I think they're um, about to release their fourth album. Um, and uh, they're uh, an L.A.-based band. The singer is a guy named Marlon Rabenreiter, uh, Vienna-born, L.A.-raised, very uh, broadly artistic guy who probably could have gone into fine art or music. And uh, I'm really happy he's going into music. And he's... Um, I just think one of the best uh, artists I've come across in a long time. And uh, he has a song called Get It Together that uh, I think would be a great one to play right now. Awesome. Let's listen to Gold Star. Get It Together here on World Cafe. Step back, sister, stay in bed. She's got a notion, get it. World Cafe, that is Gold Star. Get it together. Come on. From their album Uppers and Downers. That is DJ Choice from our guy, Peter Jesperson, our guest today, who is the author of Euphoric Recall, a half century as a music fan, producer, DJ, record executive, and tastemaker. Uh, Peter, it's very clear you have not lost the passion at all for music. Uh, this, this has been a, a real uh, treat to have you on. So thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for asking. You got it. This is World Cafe. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from NYU Stern. What makes a good leader great? It's your own ambition coupled with the support you need to take that next great leap. With NYU Stern's Executive MBA program in Washington, D.C., that's what you get. A robust curriculum balanced with convenience. Classes held one Friday, Saturday, Sunday a month in downtown D.C. Be open to excellence. Search NYU Stern EMBA in D.C. for more information. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.